Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley and you're about to listen to the Versailles Anniversary Project. A project of when diplomacy fails. We've been podcasting for seven years in May, which is pretty incredible but what's also incredible is even the fact that you are listening right now thank you for listening i really really appreciate it and maybe you're expecting one of those pitches that say hey if you only do this or that then you'll help support this podcast i'm not going to do that instead i'm just going to say no actually never mind i am going to do that but i'm going to do it in a really, really simple and straightforward way all i want you to do is if you enjoyed this episode if you enjoy this podcast simply tell people about it because word of mouth is by far the best way to help other people find this podcast and to help spread the word about when diplomacy fails 
and Zach Twomley's crazy little side project slash hobby slash job slash all-consuming passion that he has going on. The Versailles Anniversary Project is obviously a very big project and it takes a lot of time. It is essentially a full-time job getting all these scripts researched and written up and then recorded and then edited and promoted and put out and everything else. You of course know by now that a lot of work goes into these and I'm not going to stand here and be like, oh poor me, but you should know that the end product that you guys are listening to right now is something which is itself the product of a lot of man hours. By that I mean my own hours. And all of this is possible because I'm able to spend so much time on my podcast because my podcast is supported so generously by so many people through Patreon. So if you would like to support this podcast and make sure that history thrives, go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and by supporting us at the two, five or six dollar tiers, you will get extra content, the chance to play the delegation game and so much more. So check it out guys, but otherwise, I hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 20. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, delegates, all to episode 20 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. After spending some time examining the fortunes of the Allies, in particular the different journeys enjoyed by Woodrow Wilson, it's time to change our focus to the Germans and assess their fortunes over the same period. What kind of government was established in Germany after the war, and what were this government's major goals? Who led it, who opposed it, and what dangers did it face? All these questions and more will be addressed here, as I take you all to November 1918. It was the second last full day of the war. 
and Prince Bernard von Bülow, a former German Chancellor, who you may have heard of, was wandering the streets of Berlin, searching desperately for some news of the German delegation, which had gone to meet with the Allies in Compiègne to negotiate an armistice. But Bülow didn't find such solace in Berlin on the 9th of November 1918. Instead, all he found was his beloved fatherland clothed in rags and splintering apart under the looming threat of revolution. Bülow recalled, In Berlin, on November 9th, I witnessed the beginnings of a revolution. Alas, she did not come, as Ferdinand Lasalle had envisioned, in the shape of a radiant goddess, her hair flowing in the wind and shod with sandals or iron. She was instead like an old hag, toothless and bald, her great feet slipshod and down at the heel. Our revolution brought us no gambetta to proclaim war to the knife and prolong our resistance by five months. I have never in my life seen anything more brutally vulgar than those straggling lines of tanks and lorries managed by drunken sailors and deserters from reserve formations which trailed through the Berlin streets on the 9th of November. I've seldom witnessed anything so nauseating, so maddeningly revolting and base as the spectacle of half-grown louts tricked out with the red armlets of social democracy who, in bands of several at a time, came creeping up behind any officer wearing the Iron Cross to pin down his elbows at his sides and tear off his epaulets. It was like something straight out of the depths of hell, like a national apocalypse for which there seemed no explanation. It was only once von Bülow took the time to converse with other Berliners that he came to realise what it all meant. The Kaiser was gone, and later that evening his abdication would be proclaimed. When the monarchy collapsed, the Council of People's Deputies took control of the state and attempted to reassert control over its revolting cities by presenting itself as a legitimate successor to the Wilhelmine regime. At the head of this effort, and central to the foundations of the Weimar Republic which would soon follow, was one political party above all, the Social Democratic Party. The party was reunited and reinvigorated at the end of the war, its splinter group of anti-war members being welcomed back into the fold. In 1912, the Social Democratic Party had been Germany's largest party in the Reichstag, and now following the war, the Social Democratic Party resumed its position. The centrist and right-of-centre parties had been discredited and were in any case smaller than the towering organisation which the Social Democratic Party had built up since its foundation in 1863. But thanks to anti-socialist laws in Germany and Bismarck's aversion towards socialist democracy, the party didn't get a fair opportunity to represent its supporters until 1890, whereupon it rapidly gained political ground. Integral to the party's success now would be its political leadership, and for this unenviable mission, Friedrich Ebert would volunteer as tribute. Actually, Ebert had been a prominent member of the Social Democratic Party for many years, becoming joint chairman of the party in 1913, and leading it through the contentious times of the early war years, where ideas of patriotism and questions of principles were intertwined and often conflicted. At heart, it might interest you to know that Friedrich Ebert was essentially a Marxist, yet he differed from many of his peers this far left of centre, in that he valued and argued passionately for democratic processes to facilitate the reforming of Germany along socialist principles. 
I don't want that. Indeed, I hate it like sin, was how Ebert responded to Chancellor Max von Baden's question about a communist revolution being launched in his party's name. Marxist though he was, or at least was at some point, the war possibly altered Ebert's radicalism and moved him instead to become a determined progressive. Parliamentary democracy, votes for women, the welfare state, the improvement of the working conditions, these were tasks of far more import to Ebert than the establishment of some Marxist utopia. In any case, he had his task cut out for him, even if Germany had been the most socialist haven on earth, absorbing the political implications of the aftermath of the Great War would prove to be Ebert's greatest challenge, and how he dealt with this challenge became part of his most enduring legacy. I threw myself on my bed and buried my burning head in my pillow in the duvet. I had not cried since the day I stood at my mother's grave. Now I couldn't do anything else. This exclamation was performed by a man who it is impossible not to have heard of, Adolf Hitler. On the 12th of November 1918, Hitler learned that his beloved German Imperial Army had collapsed. Yet even here, Hitler convinced himself of the falsehood that the army had not been defeated, she had been stabbed in the back. Who was responsible? Not just the cowards, the deserters and the Jews, but also the Social Democrats, Friedrich Ebert's party, who Hitler blamed for throwing in the towel well before it was necessary. Interestingly, historians are coming to terms with a strange paradox regarding late 1918 Germany. On the one hand, Hitler associated Ebert's party and the leftist socialism he mostly represented with timidity, cowardice and a betrayal of German virtues. Yet on the other, this period of German revolution is tied tightly to images of German communists, of aggressive and belligerent Spartacist uprisings and horrific reprisals against a starved and terrified German populace. In Hitler's mind, the left in Germany was one and the same. Hitler believed that the left, the Social Democratic Party, were cowards, and yet in the name of socialist democracy, Germans were doing very violent and very brave things at the same time. So, the two ideas of how the Social Democratic Party worked, and their responsibility for the war ending, did not really gel. Unsurprisingly, when it comes to Hitler's ideology, things don't exactly gel very well together. But in Hitler's mind, the left in Germany was also one and the same. The communists were the social democrats. Yet in reality, it is of course not so simple. This, interestingly enough, is where our appreciation for what happened during the German Revolution of late 1918 and early 1919 becomes clouded and warped. Our impressions of that event, of the German Revolution, and what it meant at the time and what it means now, are often caught between Hitler and hysteria, where the cowardly leftist communists betrayed Germany on the one hand, and bravely launched a doomed revolution for a Bolshevik Germany on the other. Were they violent? Were they pacifist? Were they cowardly? Were they brave? It's very hard to tell, and unsurprisingly, people don't always fit in the boxes you choose for them. Perhaps the distinction doesn't really matter to you, and perhaps it doesn't matter much in the historical record either. Yet, I think we lose something of the significance of the moment in German history if we neglect to investigate what actually happened, and what Friedrich Ebert did for Germany's fleeting flirtation with democracy. It was under Ebert's guidance and stern hand that the Weimar Republic was established. 
thanks to his sense of reason that the terms of the Treaty of Versailles were accepted, and thanks to his political pragmatism that the Social Democratic Party formed an integral part of German politics in the interwar years. Ebert's actions, in other words, had a profound impact upon the shape of Germany's post-war government, and upon her behaviour during the cameo appearance she made at the Paris Peace Conference. Yet in spite of this, I'd wager few people outside of Germany really know the name of Friedrich Ebert. This episode should rectify this, because rather than having Hitler as our guide for the post-war situation, I want instead to frame the events of November, December and early January, and place them in context. As the Germany everyone knew crumbled into the dust, what took its place, how durable was this new Germany, what challenges did it face, and what impact did its appearance have on its neighbours, many of whom were grappling with the dilemma left by the exit of several empires and the resulting power vacuum which emerged in its stead, well these are all questions which hopefully by the end of this episode you guys will be able to answer. You'll also be better placed to appreciate what the Spartacist revolt meant, and why, contrary to the expectations of many gloomy individuals, Germany did not sink beneath the waves of a Bolshevik tide in 1919. So let's begin. We should start with something of a note of caution as far as terminology is concerned. Some historians find the very idea of a German revolution contentious at its core, because, as one historian has explained, Although the socio-economic upheavals in Germany at the end of World War I are customarily referred to as the Revolution of 1918, in discussing the events most scholars implicitly, or explicitly, surround the word revolution with inverted commas, in order to indicate their uneasiness about applying the term revolution to what happened in Germany in 1918-19. In comparison with changes wrought by real revolutions, those in France, Russia, or China, the German revolution seemed to affect few alterations in the fabric of German society. The Reich became a parliamentary republic instead of a semi-authoritarian monarchy, but underneath the new label, little of substance seemed to have changed. The republic kept most of the imperial executives, the army remained a state within a state, under the command of its old officers, the judiciary was still notorious for its monarchical and reactionary prejudices, and the economy retained its capitalist character. Were Mike Duncan ever to cover this period for his Revolutions podcast, in other words, he would have to grapple with the question of whether the German Revolution was even a German Revolution at all, or was it instead merely a radical response to traumatic experiences, like defeat and destruction, on a scale never before experienced? Not since the Napoleonic Wars and the humiliation which was the 1807 Treaties of Tilsit, after all, had Prussia, or Germany, felt such a stinging loss as that which was suffered in 1918. The inevitable march of progress had been denied. The traditional leader of this progress, the Hohenzollern dynasty, had ruled for centuries, but now she was gone. In terms of the radical change, this was a revolution, but thanks to various factors, the rhythm which Germany settled into in the weeks that followed the end of the war appeared less like a revolution, and more like a course in applying several bandages to several wounds. The patient may have been wounded, but she was still Germany. She still contained German people. She still boasted arguably the largest industrial base, which was, importantly enough, barely damaged at all following the war. And she also contained the largest European population outside of Russia, with it the greatest military potential. 
She still, of course, had the ability to make France quake in her boots. She had not and would not collapse as Russia had done, spitting out her contingent nationalities into their own states, except in one notable case which was to prove a running sore in months to come, the Poles. Yet, in terms of government, one could argue just as easily that stability was the byword of the day, and that, so long as they were fed and not in danger for their lives, Germans would support the legal government, especially once they got the chance to vote for it themselves. The term revolution is thus something which, typically enough for this era and project, is not straightforward, but mercifully we're not tasked with breaking this argument down, only acknowledging its existence. Our true task, to bring things back a bit, is to examine exactly what the Social Democratic Party did to bring Germany back from the brink of disintegration, and how Friedrich Ebert played a leading role in that quest. Now, to get the obvious out of the way, I'm not here to state that the Social Democratic Party oversaw a flawless period of transition, nor would I argue that the Weimar Republic itself was ever particularly stable or durable as an idea not to return again to the spectre of Adolf Hitler, but it is difficult to shake the idea that, if Friedrich Ebert's new socialist democracy had been stronger, then it would not have collapsed within 15 years of its creation. This, however, is as much the fault of German politicians like Ebert as it was the fault of the Germans themselves, who refused to accept that they had been beaten and gobbled up conspiracy theories like the stabbed-in-the-back idea because it made them feel better and could be applied as a salve for their wounded pride. Part of my thesis for this project was that the Treaty of Versailles did not make the Second World War inevitable, and this is validated by the appearance, almost as soon as the armistice was signed, and in other words, before the Treaty of Versailles was even made known, of parties arguing that Germany hadn't really been defeated, or that the defeat had been caused by other sinister forces unrelated to her army. That these excuses were put forward can be explained by the inability of the German people to accept defeat. Defeat was unacceptable because defeat had never been seen or experienced firsthand by her population, certainly not in the way that it was during the Napoleonic Wars, and certainly not in the way that it would be during the Second World War. In the twilight moments of the Second War, Hitler was adamant that Germans should burn rather than repeat the humiliations of the November surrender. Those November criminals would not be allowed to return. It was better to go down fighting in spite of what this meant for the German people. In 1918, Germany was militarily defeated, but in 1918 she was not societally, culturally or even economically crushed. Her realm still provided for a recovery, which was perfectly possible with some careful diligence and security. Almost in acknowledgement of this potential, it was easier for Germans to imagine that they had been wronged rather than that they had been decisively defeated, as had been the case. The German Empire was, of course, strong, far stronger than any other European power had predicted in 1914, and stronger perhaps than the Germans had imagined themselves. She had absorbed two million dead and millions more wounded, the collapse of her supply and organisation, and the unravelling of certain portions of the country which began their descent into communism. Yet her institutions of government and the will of the majority was still strong enough to facilitate a transition from empire to republic, rather than empire to anarchy as some had feared. Germans, by and large, had not so lost hope that they preferred Russia's radical creed over something which was inherently German, that being their own social democratic party. An undercurrent of anti-Russian feeling 
also pervaded German democratic socialism well before the German declaration of war was delivered on the 1st of August 1914, and this also counted against the Germans following the Russian lead. Even Marxists within Ebert's Social Democratic Party had agreed by 1914 that politics was to be favoured over revolution. The Social Democratic Party, after all, enjoyed far more freedoms and representation in the Reichstag than any equivalent Russian party in the Duma. The German experience of war weariness also differed from Russia's in that the new government which fell into Ebert's hands did not seek to continue the war as the Russian provisional government had done in February 1917. If Ebert's government had sought to do this, then perhaps Germany would have collapsed and succumbed to Bolshevism. But as it stood in the second week of November 1918, too many factors counted against the likelihood of Germany falling as one nation into the Bolshevik net. That, of course, did not mean that statesmen the world over did not possess a paralysing fear over that very nightmare becoming a reality. While the victorious Allies set about conversing with one another, planning for the preliminary peace conference and imagining the spoils they could hope to grab, Friedrich Ebert was busy tracking down food for the people of Germany, demobilising soldiers and hurrying the process of creating a peace treaty along. Ebert's Social Democratic Party managed to toe the line between an opposition party which could speak for the people's discontent, despite having entered government the month before, and to retain enough control over the reins of the government that their takeover from Prince Max von Baden when the latter resigned would be relatively painless. With the reins of power in his hands after pushing for the Kaiser's abdication, on November 10th, Ebert was heard to remark that Germany has completed her revolution. As far as Ebert was concerned, he was now in power in a provisional government, tasked with restoring the country and repairing it, and the concept of radical revolution on either side of the political spectrum would go no further than it already had. This, of course, meant that his government was destined for conflict with those minority elements of the country that had taken it upon themselves to fly a revolutionary flag. Ebert was no fool, and he knew that these elements would have to be contended with. He also knew that the terms of the armistice added additional strain to Germany's situation. After signing on the dotted line on the 11th of November, several stopwatches began to tick down. German soldiers had to evacuate east of the Rhine within 30 days. She had to hand over vast portions of her railway stock within the same time frame, and, demoralisingly, the naval blockade of Germany was set to continue, not for a specified time, but indefinitely. Without the coasts open to foreign trade, no food could get through, which meant that the combination of a harsh winter and the flourishing of the Spanish flu epidemic would spell certain doom for millions of Germans if something was not done soon. Perhaps the gravest challenge which the new democratic socialist president faced was in the contentious armistice terms. These hampered his political options and guaranteed the fostering of bitterness and tension so long as the government was unable to reassert control. The French, of course, gleefully supported all separatist movements that sprang up, however small, especially within the Rhineland. Ebert indicated to his Social Democratic Party colleagues throughout the country, via telegram, that he had taken control of Germany's government to prevent civil war and starvation, and he implemented, only the day after the signing of the armistice, several sweeping reforms aimed at reducing the burden on German workers and demonstrating his government's seriousness to effect genuine change. But Ebert still faced immense problems, one of which was the perception many in Germany had of his leadership. 
Some indicated they would only answer to their old imperial officials. Others questioned the legitimacy of Ebert's democratic credentials, since he had come to power without ever being voted in by anyone, after all. It was a fair enough point, if awkwardly timed. Ebert thus worked overtime to create some way of legitimising his regime, and he believed he found it in the potential for a new German National Assembly based at the old German town of Weimar. It may surprise us to learn exactly how dogmatically Ebert pushed for democratic legitimacy and for democratic principles, the vote of the citizen, serving as the only true way of making official a ruling government. Ebert was thus wary of the soldiers and workers' councils, not only because they were a rival to his power base, but also because he loathed the idea that anyone other than the entire population of Germany should have a say in what kind of government was elected. This was demonstrated from the very beginning. When Ebert learned that a republic had been declared in Germany on the 9th of November, he had angrily proclaimed, Only a constituent assembly can decide what becomes of Germany. By a constituent assembly, he meant an assembly staffed by elected German officials who would create a new constitution for Germany and thereafter form a government. He spent much words warning the German people not to heed the slick messaging of the extremists in the country, who promised much and would certainly ignore the rightful, legitimate democratic processes in order to attain power. In an interview on the 18th of November, Friedrich Ebert had stated that Our most important task is to give the German people peace and bread. To do that, we need order and freedom. Our main emphasis is therefore upon the creation of orderly, productive circumstances in order to assure the feeding of our people. In that, we have above all one enemy whom we must fight. The attempts of individuals to overthrow the new order through armed putsches, putsch attempts. Without them, order in the streets would not even have been disturbed, and all the police measures would have been unnecessary. Ebert was adamant that bloodshed in Germany should not follow the end of the Great War. He planned instead to gather the councils of the different regions together, on the expectation that these would vote to create a proper national assembly that could fully legitimise his regime. Yet, this process was not as straightforward as Ebert had hoped largely thanks to the intervention of the military, which Ebert was dependent upon if the terms of the armistice were to be carried out. The pact between Ebert and the army was strained on several occasions, though, often by the incredulous response given by the military to Ebert's refusal to use force. In Berlin, by now a hotbed of disaffection and revolt, Ebert refused to approve of the military takeover of the city, as one visiting Austrian observer noted in mid-December, I am happy to state that Ebert, whose conduct makes an especially good impression, has not lost his head. He is, though, in a difficult position, for he obviously does not want to employ in a brutal manner the power which he actually has in his hands. Yet, while Ebert refused to countenance the use of force, he was far from blameless in his quest to establish a socialist democracy. To begin with, Ebert was firmly of the view that the Treaty of Versailles was fundamentally unfair, and he expressed this viewpoint whenever he got the chance, normally as a way of excusing his own shortcomings. Most infamously of all, though, Ebert would welcome back German soldiers, returning from occupied France and Belgium in December, with the claim that these men were heroes and that they had not been defeated. No enemy has conquered you, Ebert exclaimed. One is struck by the irony of this act. 
because Ebert would later be indelibly associated with the November criminals and as one among many yellow-bellied German officials who stabbed the army in the back by negotiating the armistice. Ebert, of course, did not see himself that way. He upheld that he was a socialist working to achieve peace where no other option existed. Somehow the Germans needed peace, even though they had not been defeated, and somehow Ebert, the anti-treaty socialist, would be associated with the Treaty of Versailles as though it had been his idea. By praising these returning soldiers, Ebert was also digging his own political grave, because again, if these returning soldiers hadn't been defeated, then why did Germany need Friedrich Ebert to negotiate any kind of peace? The complexity of this charade is as notable as the holes which appear in it once one looks closer, and Ebert was unmistakably tangled up within it. As 1919 dawned, Ebert had a record which he certainly felt stood him in good stead, even while there remained much to be desired. Social democracy was on track, as long as Germans were permitted soon enough to go to the polls and validate his mission. One group that were utterly dissatisfied with Ebert's record were the Communists. To them, social democracy was not socialism or even Marxism light. The only way, they believed, for Marxism to flourish was through genuine revolution which overthrew the state. Otherwise, they contended, the capitalist shell of old Germany would hamper any true communist regime. That only a party which drew power from true workers' councils or Soviets would suffice, and that Ebert's views on legitimacy through the vote would doom socialism for good, were ideas that the extreme fringes of the independent Social Democratic Party, some of whom were in coalition with Ebert, espoused. These independents had distinguished themselves during the war by demanding a peace in 1917, which affected a divide in the larger Social Democratic Party, and highlighted these men and women as radicals on the left wing. Ebert's conception of how to attain legitimacy, and their fears that the socialist message would be diluted, compelled a minority within this minority party to act. In 1914, on the eve of World War, the more extreme leftist elements in the independent Social Democratic Party had founded the Spartacist League to serve as their organisation. The name for this league was derived from Spartacus, of course, the gladiator of ancient Rome who led the greatest slave uprising ever seen. The Spartacist League would facilitate this battle against slavery, or capitalism in this case, and during the war they became more active. By the war's end, the Spartacists were associated with extreme leftist activism, but not all social democrats and the independent party, even on the extreme side, supported them, only adding, of course, to the confusion. Regardless, the Spartacists were one of the groups that loudly criticised Ebert's policies, and they joined with other radical left-wing extremists to form the Communist Party of Germany in late 1918. The confusion which followed, and the reason why it's called the Spartacist Uprising, is sourced from the fact that the terms Spartacist and Communist were often used interchangeably in the months that followed, and the Spartacists considered themselves now wholly removed from their old social democratic past, and instead as the precursors of their Communist Party, but the media and their old political rivals and allies didn't always follow this trend, and just referred to them, in many cases, by their old names. The momentary sense of calm which November and December arguably fostered in Germany would shortly crumble to pieces in the new year, thanks not only to the proclamation of communist opposition to Ebert's Social Democratic Party in the form of the extremist Spartacists, but also thanks to Ebert's response. 
the Fry Corps, an organization which could fill its own podcast, was called in. Before you say, Zach, you fool, that's not how you pronounce Fry Corps, I'll have you know I consulted several experts on the pronunciation, since some say free and some say Fry Corps, and I wanted to get it right. According to these experts, in other words, the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook group, how's it going guys, thanks for helping me out here, the latter, Fry Corps, is what we're going with, and if you don't like it, take it up with someone who cares. Let's just say it's been a long week, and leave it at that. Leave it at Fry Corps. Consisting of former soldiers, embittered ethnic Germans, and other disaffected paramilitary groups on the right wing, the Fry Corps would bulldoze ahead throughout not merely Germany, but also, a forgotten fact of history, the eastern portions of Europe upheld to be indisputably German, like the Baltic states. These individuals passionately despised the armistice and were fundamentally incapable of digesting the humiliation which Germany had suffered, qualities not exclusive to the Freikorps alone, as we have learned. The Freikorps were only too happy to take out their frustrations on what they deemed as enemies to the state, and they were happier still to follow the instructions of the state, however loosely defined, in tracking these enemies down. The Freikorps happened to enjoy the support of the still largely right-wing, monarchist, Prussianized sections of the army which remained in place, certainly to a greater extent than any nascent communist movement did. Thus, when the Spartacists rose up amidst a massive strike in Berlin, the opportunity for these ne'er-do-wells to act loomed into view. Friedrich Ebert's decision to approve of their deployment, after holding out for so long against any such violent methods of repression, sparked the most serious crisis which his shaken government had yet faced. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.